everyone. Welcome to episode eight of uh, Photography Chat. Um, we're kicking it off here with Big Head Taco, also known as Take, and uh, we're gonna get him in on the video. Hey, Take. How's it going, man? Going good yourself. Oh, great. It's good to see you. Nice to see you as well. Can are my headphones working? I'm always worried that my headphones don't work. Are they no, great? No, you know the funny thing is, I don't think they are because when you speak, you're on the phone speaker. So I'm taking these suckers off. Okay. This never seems to. That's weird. My... Your audio sounds fine. Yeah, because it's using the phone. It's oh, okay. using the phone microphone, not the headphone microphone. I think it's time for a new iPhone. What, what iPhone are you rocking? iPhone 8. Oh, Jesus. I'm, I'm, an hold, I'm a holdout because when the 8 came out, it was the same as the iPhone 10 or the X, right? Yeah. And I hated that notch. I looked at it, I'm like, that thing is so ugly. I was like, there's no way I'm going to rock the notch. And I'm like, I'm going to wait for the next iPhone without a notch. But and they I, don't have the notch. <laughs> I, I'm a holdout since then. And even for my laptop, I had a 2015 MacBook Pro. And yeah. in 2016, they got rid of... Actually, I bought my 2015 in 2016 because I saw that they removed all the ports other than the Thunderbolt. And I'm like, yeah. I'm not doing that. And I don't not like the butterfly switch keyboards. And I'm like, I don't trust it. And so I waited until this year. I finally got the MacBook Air M1. Okay. And now I'm hearing the new 14-inch MacBook Pro is going to basically resurrect my 2015 MacBook Pro with all the connections, yeah. magic... Uh, the mag a MagSafe connection and all the things that I wanted and I held out for like a solid five years, right? And Dude, I'm like still I'm still a massive holdout. So like I use a 2013 MacBook Pro 15 that um, I've had since 2014. And but I think it's the it's the same as my 2015 though. It is the same pretty much. More or less, yeah. Like right? it's and, and I'm running Big Sur on it, which I was kind of like a little scared to like upgrade to. Yeah, um, but so far it's been good. Like the only thing that's annoying is like I have it hooked up to a couple of twenty-four inch panels for when I'm mm. working, and um, there for some reason Apple decided when you plug in monitors, it forces you to use GPU, which means it forces the fans on. Like, uh -huh. so it's just like kind of annoying and, and loud. But uh, you know, it's I, I did cave though, and like I've got um, the uh, I, I did buy an iPhone twelve Pro max and um oh pro max yeah i love it the notch yeah. I, I thought i'd hate the notch and i really i don't you know um oh. but for, for doing lives and stuff i do use an old iphone 8 that's like dedicated for just doing instagram live so that like i don't have to worry about like text messages or calls or anything like coming through and interrupting the live so it's like we're on an iPhone 8 right now, but like my everyday carry is uh, an iPhone 12. So both Rock and the 8. And also, you know, I do like the, I don't like the face sense. Like my wife has the 11. Yeah. And I don't like, I like having my finger on the, the, the uh, finger sensor as it's coming out of my pocket. And I do yeah. it so like, I'm not even conscious that I'm doing it anymore. It almost feels like there's no security. Like it's just, it's just, I do it. So like it comes out of my pocket and it's just bang, it's ready to rock the Casbah, right? Well, and here's the thing too, that's, that's a bit annoying. So it's like, 
Face ID is kind of cool, and I've, I've kind of dug it playing around. Like, the previous phone I had before, I still use it. It's my work phone now, but I an iPhone 8 Plus is what I upgraded from. But the one thing I hate is now that we live in this new pandemic COVID era, Face ID doesn't fucking work when you're out in the wild. And I, whenever I'm using my work phone, I'm like, oh, man, I miss Touch ID. <laughs> but apparently, yeah, like they're bringing it back in, in the new iPhone that's coming. They're going to have a Touch ID inside of the screen. That's why I'm hoping, uh, sorry, I'm just seeing one of my followers. Hey, Jessica, how's it going? And also I saw uh, Jauma joining as well. Hey, Jauma. And, and, oh, well, Barry. Barry, we know both. Both of us know Barry. Yeah. Hey, Barry. And let's just see here. Um, yeah, we're sitting here whining about Apple products while using Apple products. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the thing. So it's like. I, for, for all of my personal stuff, I, it's all Apple and it, it's just because the workflow for like what I, I've kind of landed in as a creator seems to work better on, on the iPhone and, and Mac stuff because like, you know, I share most of my stuff on Instagram and Instagram is like, you know, ultimately how I ended up meeting you because I found out about the film Padea through, yes. through Instagram, but the, the workflow that's kept me on Apple is when I get my scans or when I scan Polaroids and things like that. I put them on my MacBook and I look at them and I, you know, do my edits or whatever I want to do. And then I airdrop them onto my iPhone so that I can, um, you know, upload them onto Instagram from there. And that is the main thing that keeps me in the Apple ecosystem is that I've just developed this workflow that I like and I enjoy that's very Apple centric because, you know, I haven't found anything for Windows PCs or like Android stuff that lets you do that is simply other than like, well, you could put it on a Dropbox. It's like, well, I don't want to upload it into the cloud to just download it again. I like that I can just pick the ones I want to share that day, airdrop them on my phone, and then just delete them off of my phone when I'm done with them. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's where, um, I think people who, who use Android and maybe Windows, they don't understand like the design of the design language of Apple, which is both a physical hardware thing as well as an interface software thing. And well, when they're so system. well integrated yeah. that until you, you, it's almost like trying to explain to someone like the ergonomics of a camera, right? Like yeah. verbally explaining it to them versus like take it for the weekend, shoot with it, come back, let me know what you think. And so and trying to verbally explain it and argue over forums over like these things, it's like you actually got to try it. And, yeah. and when you try it, most people that I know that have went from Android to win, uh, Android to Apple. So when it comes to mobile phones, computer is a different thing. I find that um, I do see a lot of advantages still to a a PC, but a standalone device, right? Yeah. Not 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 an ecosystem of multiple devices. But once you get more than one Apple product, which I got hooked with the iPhone first. Yeah. And then I was a PC guy for like since. 1987 i've been on pc windows pc right so i i'm the old uh dos uh five point whatever and then the original <laughs> windows 3 and like i went through the all the windows until 2014 i got a mac because i started doing youtube videos and i didn't know how to video edit and so and i remember watching a casey neistat video and he's like the only reason why i bought a an imac was because it came with the with imovie a free That's movie right, editing man. and i'm like oh so I ended up buying my 11 inch air and I'm like, Oh wow. Like it has all these apps that are none of them is spam. None of it is bloatware. They're all they're like notes as well as pages, which replaced um, my Microsoft word. And I was always used to buying 
um, anti-virus software and Macs yeah. just worked. And I'm like, oh, uh, everything just kind of works together. And it's like, well, it makes sense because it's all the same manufacturer. And so once you get into it, then it makes complete sense. But for a newbie, I get it. Like closing the window in the top right corner or top left corner instead of the right corner. Like you're looking for stuff going like, how does this work? I don't understand. Like, yeah. But once you learn it, it makes sense. But if you're new to it, it's less intuitive. Other than the iPhone, I think iPhone is super intuitive. Give it to someone who's never used it before. Like my mother-in-law and my father both use iPhones and like they get it like right away. Like you don't need to teach them anything. It's it's very intuitive. Well, and, and even OS X to a degree. So I, I gave, I, I had an old uh, iMac 21 inch from 2011 that I mailed to my niece and nephew. And my, my niece is seven and for her fifth birthday, I gave her an old Canon Digital Rebel to play with. And it, it's just been so cool, like seeing like, you know, the picture she takes with it, but she ran out of memory card space and her mom has a work computer, but they didn't have a personal computer at home. So she hasn't been able to like download pictures off of it to clear the card out. So I sent this iMac and in like four days, she had the whole iMac nailed down. Like the only stumbling block was at first her and her brother, because all they're used to is iPhones and iPads. They kept like hitting the screen, trying to like make it do stuff. So yeah. their mom their mom had to show them. It's like, this is a mouse. Use mm. the mouse to like, and they're like, oh. But like after four days, she's teaching her, her parents how to use the computer. Mm. She's like seven, it's wild. But I set it up with like iMessage and, and FaceTime and, and whatnot. But now that she could download her photos on there, I get these like random iMessages from her all the time of like photos she's taking. And like, you know, it's really kind of cool seeing like the view from like a, like a little, like a little person height. Like you're seeing like all the, they're kind of like tilted and janky, but, um, and, and we've talked a little bit about this, but I kind of see like, she's already getting into this flow of like archiving and capturing like the moments around her and stuff. It's like lots of pictures of like, you know, in the before time, before COVID, there was like lots of pictures of like her and her friends like playing and like, you know, doing stuff. And like, it was cool to see that like little glimpses in, into her life. And uh, so it's it's neat. Like Apple's definitely kind of got a bit of an advantage there because it is a bit easier to, to use. And I, use, I still use Windows for work because like, you know, hashtag I work for Dell. And so we sell Windows PCs. So, you know, for my day job, I, I do truck around on, on a XPS 13. Um, but everything else in, in my house is, is all Appleified, which which is kind of nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I just recently got a, 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 a Windows uh, computer. And I haven't used Windows on a regular basis since 2014. And I actually am surprised how the new Windows 10 works pretty nice. Hey, Retro Photo York, how's it going, Michael? It's good you, to see you, you, you. You know Michael, right? Yeah, we've, we've talked on um, on the Clubhouse a bit. Oh, good, good, good. He, he'd be a good guest to have on too. But make sure yeah. he's at his shop when he does it. I, I've talked to him about maybe getting him on there. And also just like uh, to throw it out there, if, if anyone does want to get or is interested in Clubhouse and you have like an iPhone or iPad or something, uh, send me a DM. I still have some invites left, so I can I can toss a, a Clubhouse invite. And you actually send me like I keep I keep on running out, and then they keep on giving you more. And then when some people ask, it's like, oh, I just gave it away, and then like a few days later they gave me extra and say, hey, I got the thing. Like I'm already in. Yeah. It's the same thing. I have I I I think I have four or five. So if anyone needs to get into clubhouse 
and you have an iPhone. Right now it's iPhone only. Uh, iPhone only for me. iPad. You can use it on an iPad. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. Or I. Yeah, but then you still need a phone though. You still need a phone well, number. So you can. What what I've done with friends that have Androids but they have an iPad is I'll use their Android phone number to send them the invite text. And then they just copy that link over and launch it on their iPad. Oh, I didn't know this little workaround like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I prefer, you know, for my workflow, uh, and we could now start talking about photography. Yeah. Is that, is that I do, so I know like my wife and maybe for yourself, because the iPhone is so big, you can do Instagram and you can not only consume, but create content. I, I use my iPad for everything. I don't all my creation for Instagram is on mm -hmm. my iPad. I don't use it on my iPhone okay. unless I'm in Hong Kong and I'm doing some live thing in an alley or something. Other than that, when I import my images from, for instance, I have my Fujifilm app that, that connects to my, my, uh, my camera and I can Bluetooth my images like AirDrop almost, right? AirDrop it to, or not yeah. AirDrop, whatever, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth it across my iPad process it in Snapseed and mm -hmm. then upload and then do all my typing and scripting and stuff. And I have all my hashtags pre-written in a folder in notes. So if I'm in Hong Kong, I'll have like Hong Kong, Kowloon, Tim Sai Cho, and then have the Chinese version of it. So I'm not typing it out every time the hashtags and I just copy and paste, drop it into Instagram. And it just makes my workflow a lot easier. And mm. Yeah, because I just like, and I, I always have these little wireless keyboards. Like this is a, a Logitech one. Okay. And I just kind of use it like a little, because um, remember Instagram on iPad or iPhone is still always in portrait mode. So no matter yeah. what keyboard you have, either if it's the uh, Apple Magic Keyboard or whatever it's called for iPad, or I have a Logitech case like this, but the keyboard only allows for landscape orientation. So uh, I always have to take it off the keyboard. And I wish there was a way of connecting this little connector to my, to my um, uh, iPad, iPad when it's in portrait mode and connect it to the side connector or else my keyboard's always sideways. And sometimes when I'm lazy, I will type sideways. So my Instagram is sideways and I'm like replying sideways because I don't have my portable keyboard with me. Yeah, I do the portable keyboard for for the iPhone when I'm doing the live. So when I talk back to people on on the chat, because it, it's always it was awkward to be like tapping the phone and like having it like shake things up a bit. Um, but right, right, had a funny comment there where he said, um, you know, Apple is where is it? Apple is point and shoot, and Android Windows are like 1950s TLR. <laughs> well, you know. I like my, I have, I have a lot of family, like two, my, my brother, my brother-in-law, they're both in IT, like one of my brothers, he does, um, like he runs servers and stuff. And in that world, it's just like, there's, you know, it's all, it's all windows based stuff. Yeah. Right. And another one does IT stuff and it's all windows based. So I, I get it. I know, I think as a creative, I know most creatives are on Macs because it appeals to us, not only the design language of Apple, but as well as it, they cater to artists and educators and content creators, right? It's just, it's, it's a very fluid kind of an ecosystem that they create. But if you're a programmer or you're running servers or you're doing something that needs more like very centric to whatever job you do, often this stuff is like if you're running inventory software, 
it's not written for Macs. It's it's all Windows PC yeah. based kind of stuff, right? Or even Unix based stuff. So. Well, and so like that, that's what my day job is. So like when, when I'm not behind a camera taking photos of like, you know, random things that I find interesting, um, I do like um, technical pre-sales and evangelism for Dell technologies on like data center infrastructure and cloud infrastructures and things like that. So it's a very Windows centric world and um, lots of buzzwords and um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of PowerPointing and in talking, but you know, before that I used to actually work in data centers, like doing the racking and cabling admin, administration and stuff. And uh, when I used to live in Vancouver, one of the jobs that I had there was doing uh, tech support for MDS Nordion at the Triumph facility in UBC, which was super, like, I wish I could go back there now um, or I, that I was into photography back then because I had like unfettered access to the cyclotron facility because of like, you know, the, the job that I had. And so I could have gone in there and like taken pictures of this, like, you know, 500 MeV cyclotron and, and like all the scientific equipment around it. And like, that would have been cool to like, you know, sort of document that. Um, and it's just neat where like IT can take you because I've done all sorts of interesting, weird jobs along the way. Yeah, it's a world that I'm completely, um, I made a conscious decision in the 1980s, you know, when computer science was just starting, even like AutoCAD was in its infancy. And yeah. I was really into like architecture, like drafting, I was in advanced drafting in grade 10. And for grade 11, I had finished drafting 12 in grade 10. And so my drafting teacher set myself and a colleague, uh, another classmate of mine to go to BCIT to take first year drafting and AutoCAD mm -hmm. and we were so dumb that we didn't we're just like oh but we've got to take a bus you know like we're just thinking mm -hmm. ah, that's too much work and like the Vancouver school board was going to pay for it like for us to take first year AutoCAD drafting at BCIT in 1989 1989 no 1988 they had just started it and we would have been like the first graduating class right and we would have been two years ahead of everybody else because we were in grade 10 going into grade 11, right? And so we just kind of said, ah, it's too much work. We don't want to bus it there. It's like, oh, it's an hour bus. That wouldn't even been an hour. It would have been like a 30 minute bus ride there and back. And, uh, and also computer science, wasn't interested in it. I was interested in painting and music and I didn't connect computers with the arts and it wasn't the same back then. It was completely different sort of, um, workflows, right? Like you, you're going yeah. to computer science, then you go to computer science. When going to fine arts, performing arts, it's a different thing. But now you see the power of those that kind of took programming and computer science and AutoCAD and drafting and stuff and how now they can be creative at the same time. I, I didn't, I mean, back then, I still think I would have made the same decision. Uh, not knowing what I know now, I don't regret the kind of path I went with yeah. uh, going into like, um, literature and art and that kind of stuff but uh looking back thinking about computer in its infancy so for me programming and that kind of stuff is just like greek to me i don't i don't fully understand the scope of it like i just kind of like blah blah when someone talks about that stuff i'm like blah 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 blah. yeah, yeah just do your job and let me just be <laughs> the end user like let me take advantage of what you know and i'll use the software but other than that I don't really understand 
what's I kind happening. of love that sentiment though. Just do your job, like whatever. Um, so it, it's interesting because like I'm I'm a little bit younger than you, but probably not by by too too much. Um, we did have drafting, like digital drafting, when when I was in high school, and um, I'm I'm of a vintage where we were still doing it on Macintosh pluses. Um, they they hadn't upgraded yet because you know, the it worked, so why change it? Um, we had just gotten Windows computers in like I think grade eleven, grade ten or eleven. We got like brand new upgraded Windows computers with the internet, which was just people were blown away. It was like 1995 and we're getting on the internet. It's like, oh my God. But um, I didn't really, my parents wanted me to really do computers from an early age. Like they bought me a computer when I was two and they like tried to like foster like this, you know, I'm going to be a computer businessman or something. And then I got into like a fairly like deep fuck you mom and dad state in my like late teens into, you know, graduating where I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to grow up. I just wanted to like play music and hang out with my friends. And then that's how I ended up getting into photography was, um, you know, I wanted to go to see all these shows and stuff, but I was kind of like broke because I didn't have like a great job. So it's like I installed car stereos and delivered pizzas and I borrowed a bunch of money from like one of those sketchy like finance companies to buy a Nikon D70 and it was like a total gangster loan but that was my entrance to get into shows for free because it was just like yo like if you get me into your the, I'll, I'll give you like a CD of your band like performing like you'll have it in like two days and you can put it on the internet and they're like what free tickets and I was just like that's kind of how I got into photography was you know I wanted free tickets to punk shows <laughs> in Vancouver and there was such a good scene back in the day in Vancouver for all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think for, I mean, I think I have a very similar kind of educational background in terms of like what, in terms of like what I studied and then, and then how photography came into my life. Uh, but I just kind of always knew that it would be like, once I discovered photography, I always knew it would be part of my life either if I did it for work or if I did it as a, as a, I don't like the word hobby in English. I don't know if it's like, like even the term amateur, right? I think it, it has a negative connotation um, yeah. in, in English because, you know, I try to tell people, you know, Olympics is an amateur sport. Like the morning recently allowed professionals to join the Olympics. And so the idea amateur means you're not pro which means you're not as good. And me being in the photo industry long enough, I realized that for at least for me, most hobbyist amateur photographers, they impress me more than professionals. Like mm -hmm. I don't, professional just means they do it for work, which often means it's very, it's a very systematic, uh, boring way of pumping out photos. So like if, you, if we think of something like Sears portrait studios, they're not artist photographers. They, a, lot, a lot of them don't even have photo backgrounds. They just, everything is set, the exposure is set, the angles are set, the backdrops are set. They just basically press the shutter. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure there are artistic Sears photographers that eventually move on, but in general, you don't need to be one. They basically tell you, you need no talent. Just yeah. press the shutter, 
and it'll it'll get done type thing. And so, um, and I, I used to develop the photos of wedding photographers and think, oh man, they're horrible photographers, but they were the top wedding photography studio in Vancouver. Like they got the top jobs, but I would develop their photos going like, like out of a roll, maybe there's one good photo, but they would take 2000 photos. Uh, this is the old film days, right? So I'll be like, of course, they're going to get 80 or 90 decent shots. They would shoot that much film back they then? Would, yeah, oh, yeah. They would just blow Holy through shit. film. They would just kind of like point and spray. And so I realized like, oh, like they actually aren't really that great, but they're great business people. They know how to market. They know how to brand themselves. Where some of the best photographers was like the, this old Italian dude, um, in on commercial drive that developed all his own film he enlarged all his prints he learned from his great-grandfather type thing you know what i mean and it was yeah. a passed down business from italy and he was part of some kind of a photography guild of italy like 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 all the fashion guys like they would all go through some kind of a school a proper school and okay. amongst their peers it would be judged to be worthy of being an official italian portrait studio photographer and these guys would shoot like only 220 and they would only shoot 90 photos and 90 photos were perfect like they didn't mess up anything but in terms of success they kind of did the italian gigs you know like it was only italian customers and they weren't really successful in terms of like exposure like they weren't featured in magazines they weren't being interviewed on tv shows and magazines but it's kind of like these guys were the real these are the real deal. These guys were amazing, but they didn't yeah. market themselves. And I think today photography is exactly the same. Some well, of the best photographers aren't pros. Well, I was just going to say that, like you're talking about, you know, these guys had like good marketing and like they, they knew how to like, you know, position themselves. And what, as you were saying that, I just had these flashes of like, you know, all these like content creators and things out there that are great at marketing and do take some like good photos but, you know, there's so much more beautiful work out there of, of people that just, you know, don't do the same sort of, or don't have the same sort of gumption to, like, go out there and, like, you know, pimp themselves out on, on YouTube and, and Instagram and, and whatnot. And, um, yeah, like, I've, there's so much work that I've been just impressed by where it's, like, you look and you see, like, they only have, like, 80 followers or, like, you know, a couple hundred followers and, you know, then you look at some people's work where they have like tens of thousands of followers and you're like, this is kind of shit, but everyone's like blowing them up because they're like huge and they want to get a like or something. I don't know. Yeah. And I think that's where you have to, like, in a way, I'm, I'm lucky that my photography started in an era where you didn't share your work. Like I would go for years with nobody seeing my personal work, like years like hundreds of roles. Yeah, because I wasn't entering into contests. There was no, this is, we're talking about mid nineties, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't, I, I didn't get into digital photography until quite late until like 2007 is when I got seriously into digital photography. Like I had a little, little, the four megapixel Canon point and shoot, but that was like an extension of what an iPhone is today, right? It was just snapshots. It wasn't my yeah. serious, my serious photo was all on 35 mil and 120 on my medium format cameras. And so 2007 was my first proper digital camera, but all through the 2000s and all through the 90s, it was all film work. And I would just shoot 
to test stuff. And eventually got to a point where I stopped printing because my wife's like, she was always out putting stuff into albums. And she's like, why are you taking pictures of your food? And why are you taking pictures of like multiple photos of the sky over and over? It's like, oh, it was a lens I was going to buy off of Craigslist. And I was just testing it because I was buying these. Um, maybe it's hard to see. Everything is backwards and reverse, but it's a 12 exposure roll, right? Yeah. So we would buy, I would buy like cases of them, like 50, 50 packs. Because when you bought a lens off of Craigslist, you're not going to shoot a 36 roll. So you just shot these little 12 rolls and you tell the guy that you're going to buy the lens off. It's like, well, I'm going to shoot 12 shots. You yeah. can either come with me or sit on this bench and I'll be back in 20 minutes. You go to Superstore and you just wait the 20 minutes and tell them, hey, I'm just quickly testing. Can you just run it quick? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, hey, no problem. And they run it through for you. And, um, but what do you do with these nags, right? What do, you, what do you do with them? Like, you just, you stop printing them. You got a light table, you got a loop, and you would just learn to, like, see things in negatives. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you would go years without really sharing any work. And so we never needed affirmation. We never needed someone to praise us. We just learned to shoot and learn to be very self-critical. It's like maybe in the days of, like, like, I played music as well. And and I had mini discs. That was like to me like the huge evolution of self recording. Dude, I had mini discs too. They were so yeah. Great. I still have tons of mini discs. Like I have unopened packs of mini discs, and I would listen to myself play stuff over and over again, and to the point where I would say, like, I'm imagining it's not me. How would I listen to this? And how would I hear myself? And I learned to like disconnect me from my own voice and my own playing to the point where I could be, you know, like the, you have those kids that go on American Idol and they have no idea how bad they are because they just delude themselves into thinking they're yeah. good because I feel bad for them. They have no ear. Like they have no way of disconnecting themselves from what they're creating. And I think photography, music, all these things in the days where you couldn't, you had to learn very quickly how to like look at your own work and disconnect yourself and be like, this is not my work. How can I judge myself? So I grew up in that era of like, you needed to be a, you needed to be very self-aware, which included yeah. self-critical, where you would develop yourself for years without anybody else seeing it. And then when they saw it, you hoped they would be blown away. If they weren't, you're like, oh man, I thought I was pretty darn good. And I guess I had deluded myself into thinking I was that good because you had no feedback really, right? O outside of yourself and your wife and your mother who always said your work was great. Like, you know, like I tell people often, it's like who else has seen your work other than your close friends? Because you need someone who's going to be brutal with what you do. And a lot of people, they, they do only want praise. Because I have people saying, hey, check out my work. And at a certain point, I either said no, or I said, you have to pay me. Not that I yeah. need the money, but when you pay me, you don't want me to just praise you. And if that is true, that's, that's $120 of praise. Like, that's very expensive praise. Yeah. You'd rather say, find the areas where I'm weak and help me improve, because that's really what you would want. But I found that a lot of people just wanted praise. And I feel that you can't really grow as an artist if you only want people to pat you on the back, you know, you really want someone to like critique your work and help you improve and become better. And I find that this generation only wants praise. Well, that's, it's, it's kind of in part because that's what they've been given though. 
and yes i don't mean an age generation i mean like even yeah. people my age who only started photography in the digital era yeah. who need constant immediate feedback and an affirmation even for them it's like if you started back in the old film days and you hustled meaning like you wanted to get better and maybe you join a little small group of like you'd meet once a month and you all traded prints or something like that maybe they also would have got like like positive feedback po positive like I, these are the things that i like but hey you probably should work on this you should probably work on that like i had my big brother who got me into photography mm -hmm. and another really good photographer who gave me really good feedback and I was willing to learn and I was willing to improve. And I took courses at Langara College, like darkroom classes, because I wanted to learn how to actually develop my own prints. And that teacher was um, very positive, but also kind of brutal. Like he'd say, ah, this redo it. What do you, what's, what, what's with that dodging and burning? It's like, uh, and he'd make yeah. us redo it and stuff. And so I learned how to do darkroom prints, like pretty good. And, and that's where my desire to become better was no longer about outside affirmation, but kind of internal, um, an internal desire to want to be better. Yeah. And so that's kind of where my, uh, and, and you know, this is 25 years in the making. And that's why sometimes I tell people like, dude, I've been shooting for 25 years. I've only been sharing social media for five years. So there was 20 years of me not sharing anything uh, other than jobs, right? Other than weddings yeah. and portrait and stuff like that. Other than that, um, I had to kind of, I didn't share anything. So maybe that's my superpower of, of starting photography before social media. It is totally possible. And, and I think just going back uh, quickly, just for a sec, I don't think that the praise thing is just like an age type thing. Like it started in, in like a certain generation, but I think like that behavior and that like want and acceptance of like, you know, gratification and like, you know, getting um, this, the, the, the instant gratification of sorts um, has just seeped into like every age group now. So it's like we started giving like, you know, the, the participation trophies, but then that sort of span out everywhere where now everyone wants that, not just a specific age group. And um, I think a lot, a lot of the behavior on like social media platforms does reinforce that too, because like, you know, we don't want someone to be negative towards us on there. Like we want only the, the likes and, you know, nice comments and things like that. But on the flip side of that, like, you need to have a balance. You can't have just all one thing because then if everything's positive and everything's good all the time, at what point is it actually all good and positive all the time? Like if, if someone's just telling you that or like they're telling you what you think you want to hear so that you feel good, you know, you might be missing out on the ability to do better work or think that you have a, a better capabilities than you do have because people have been telling you you're great and you know you go out there and try and you know really push yourself and like show show yourself off and realize in a very brutal way you're not as great as everyone that loves you told you you were and you know had they been just like hey this is cool but like maybe have you thought about trying this or like you know maybe don't do that ever again <laughs> <laughs> yeah and 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 that's where you know i think I, I do get a lot of young uh, photographers ask me about uh, social media and how to grow their channel, how they get into YouTube. And I try to tell them like one thing, one advice I try to give them is, it's like saying, 
do you want to be an actor or do you want to be famous, right? I think a lot of people, when it comes to social media, it's they want the fame before the talent. And I yeah. tell them, you know, like for instance, if you're a really good chef and you start a YouTube channel, if YouTube disappeared, he's still a really good chef or she's a very good chef still. YouTube yeah. just kind of amplified their talent, but in the end, they still have talent and they still maybe own a restaurant and they have a viable business and Instagram or YouTube just enhanced all that stuff. And so I try to tell them long-term strategy for authentic growth for any brand is, you know, number one is know yourself. So like know your strengths, your weaknesses, uh, your limits, right? I don't claim yeah. to be in the top 1% of all the photographers in the world. I would say I'm a competent, I always tell people, look, I feel I'm a competent photographer, meaning every once in a while I can even impress some other photographers, but I'm confident. I don't claim to be this revolutionary, I'm gonna be in art galleries around the world, no. But knowing that, then I know how to frame myself within my brand, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna like, it's hard to explain, but yeah, I, I know kind of, I create this little, like this is my box, I'm gonna stay within this box because I think this is where my strengths are and just because I'm not in the top 1% doesn't mean I can't take my brand even further than those that are in the 1%, right? Depending on what angle you, you take your brand or, um, and you know, even the term brand, I think, you know, some people take offense to that idea of, oh, well, you, you know, you, you're calling yourself a brand. And I say, well, yeah, because Big Head Taco was just one aspect of who I am because notice I didn't call it Takekayo Photography. Like I tell people like, yeah. I picked this weird name because it's not really me, it's just a part of me. And it's sort of a, uh, like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing, or like, you know, like, sure, Mr. Rogers is Mr. Rogers in real life and in the show, but the show is still a show, right? It's still, yeah. it's still not his real life. He's got puppets and different characters and, and maybe they are friends in real life, but in the show, they are characters. And so you need to separate those two things. So I separate Big Cat Taco from who I am as a real person outside of social media. And so I tell people like, have a separate account. Like, sure, I know you love your dogs and your cats and stuff, but if you're like, I wanna be a serious photographer, then it's like, well then create a separate account. You don't need to use some crazy name or anything, but have a separate account and stick to a theme. You know, most great artists don't showcase everything they do, but the one sort of genre that they're really good at, unless you can authentically blend in other things that you enjoy and it, and it comes across as authentic um, and not some random crazy thing. Because I think the more people know you, like for instance, a lot of actors and actresses and musicians have Instagram accounts. Now they're not being followed because of their photography skills, but because of who they are as a brand. So if they love dogs, but they also like snowboarding, they can add all that in because they've already painted a picture of like, hey, I'm Angela Jolie and I'm a philanthropist and I'm a mother and these are all the things I love. So that she can include all those things, right? But most of us aren't yeah. famous or infamous. So we need kind of a niche if we wanna grow a brand. And I think what you're doing with this is great, like interviewing people. This is kind of like, you're trying to grow this niche. This is kind of part of your brand, which is you are also a photographer, but you're also a programmer and you do stuff for Dell and that's a different part of your life, right? So it, it's an interesting thing because like, you know, I, I don't, I didn't start these to, to like promote myself or, or build like a social media brand at all. Um, this really started as like sort of a, a sanity tool 
in during lockdown because it's like I'm stuck in my house and I can't see people how could I see people that, that I want to talk to and it it kind of started as an accident because like I would do these things called cooking with Merlin where I would just turn my live on while I was cooking dinner and people would just like come in and ask questions and stuff and then because of like all the photography stuff I like I, I have and like you know basically like I do have two different accounts like there's my public one which is just all film photography for the most part and then I have like a private one which is like I, I share all the shit that doesn't go over there and that one's private so it's like only friends and like you know people see that side um, but because of all the photography stuff people started asking photography questions and then I pulled in a couple of photographers while I was cooking dinner and we just kind of shoot the shit while um, you know I was making dinner and then I'd be like okay bye and a bunch of people were like, this is rad, like, maybe do this as a regular thing. And so that's how photography chats got started. And I really have like, no idea or plan of what I want to build it into. I've just decided to keep doing it as long as people will spend like at least an hour with me every Thursday, and people will come in and watch. Um, but I like your point there, like going back just a little bit, do you want to be an actor? Or do you want to be famous? Because I think there's a very big difference between someone who is, uh, you know, famous because they're an actor and someone who's like a really great actor that's become famous because of like their talent. And um, I would prefer to be an actor than, you know, uh, someone who's just famous and in meeting some really famous people, I'm like, I really just don't want to be famous at all. Like, I don't like the loss of privacy and all that, that it seems like you get when you become like a, a really famous person as much as all the money would be nice. Um, I don't think it's worth losing that kind of thing. But on your point of brands, brands are an interesting thing because brands have existed well before social media ever did. And, um, you know, your personal brand is something that you should keep in mind at all times, not only just for social media, but just like for your for your career, for your interpersonal relationships and things like that. Because like how you represent yourself, how you carry yourself is important and that builds a brand. And like I have a very different brand when I'm at work from like, you know, eight to six every day kind of thing. Um, and that's like, that's work Merlin. And work Merlin is a very different person than the, the Merlin you're talking to right now, because I need to be to like, you know, do well in that world. And so that's the brand and that's the persona that I've built to exist in that construct that like regular me probably wouldn't do so well in. <laughs> so it's, it's like branding is, is an important thing because it's not just about like, you know, Oh, I'm going to get a logo and oh, I'm going to get this theme and stuff like that. It's also like, it's an ethos and it's like, what, what are you about? Like, what do you, what do you personally believe in? What do you support? What do you want to represent? That's the biggest parts of figuring out what your brand is. Cause like, if you could figure those parts out, then you can sort of bolt on the other you know, niceties on top of it. But if you build this pretty looking brand that has no substance behind it, it's not going to go anywhere because people sniff that shit out immediately and and like completely shut down and block those things so it's yeah, like yes yeah, i always you know. use the illustration of like a brick and mortar store like a coffee shop yeah you can get a great logo and nice sign up and beautiful windows and nice furniture so it's very attractive on the outside you're like oh wow look at that like that looks like a great coffee shop but you go in and it just the coffee sucks the service sucks it's stinky in there you know you realize that the furniture is all cheap and just kind of bolted on and then you, you leave, right? And so I think a lot of people make the mistake of branding means 
you just think Coca-Cola, Starbucks, they think that. But they created the inner workings of that brand before they put anything on the outside. Look at the very first McDonald's logo or the very, like McDonald's is very clear of their, their, what they're projecting out. And that's why I always say like, I don't like the way marketing companies use the term branding. And I've said this so many times, you know, they'll tell you branding is your way of distinguishing yourself from the competition. So at Starbucks, how are you different from Tim Hortons? How are you different from McCafe? Like, how do you distinguish yourself from the competition? And that's fine from a business perspective, but I think to me, that's a very, uh, a, a finite uh, game versus an infinite sort of a thinking, which is from a personal brand standpoint, it's not how you distinguish yourself from people, but how you project outwards of who you are and what you believe in. And when you project out a certain thing, you will get back the same type of people. See, when I meet my, my followers on Instagram, YouTube, my, even my wife now can pick up on it. When they notice me from like across, I tend to bump into people at airports and my wife's like, I think, I think, I think he's one of your followers. I think he's a YouTube guy. <laughs> and she can just sort of tell. And there's a certain kind of like a, it's hard to explain, but there's like a 40 year old dad vibe to them. Like they're harmless. You yeah. know, there's just this dad vibe or they're like 20 something hipster vibe. Like they just picked up their first film camera. And there's a certain vibe that they give off. And when I meet them and they're nice and I can, my energy is the same as their energy. I'm like, that means my brand is working. It means what I'm projecting out, I'm getting back, right? Yeah. And, and then you have other people who say like, and I use an example of sounds like, uh, you know, every time I get a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, it's always the same type of person. You know, why do I keep on getting the same bad people? It's like, well, you, you get what you project out. I mean, that's branding, right? It's like if you project out a certain personality, a certain energy, and you're getting, you know, like bottom of the barrel type people, it's like, well, maybe it's because you're projecting out is, is so wrong that that's kind of what you're getting. It's like, so same thing, like if you're not authentic, if you are rude, crass, if you are, you know, like not nice, critical, that's the kind of followers you're going to get. Yeah. You know, and those that are that way who follow you and you're not that way, they're not going to stick around very long. Cause they're like, I don't like this guy. He's too nice. He's too, or they might think it's, he's too phony. You know, yeah. he, he's just not my type. They just, they just kind of leave. Right. So when you project out, so that's to me what personal branding is project out your true self. Don't pretend you're someone that you're not because, you know, and I use the illustration of um, uh, Peter Dinklage, Peter Dinklage. Yeah. The actor from Game of Thrones, uh, the little person. Yeah. If he tried to go out and get Brad Pitt roles, he would fail in Hollywood, right? He's just, first of all, self-awareness. Like, hey, like, know who you are and leverage what you have. So he's like, all right, well, I'm a little person. But, you know, I have this kind of a theatrical voice. I have this British accent. And I think I would play really good roles of, like, kind of a position of power and intellect because that's mm -hmm. kind of how I am in real life. I'm this little person, people underestimate me, but they realize, oh, wow, he's intelligent, he's well-spoken, and, and so, and he's, he's a, quite a handsome man, right? So it's like, I'm gonna leverage all the qualities I have, and I'm gonna project out, and these are the roles I'm gonna go out for, and he's a super successful actor in, in Hollywood because he leveraged what he had, and he was authentic to his true self. And so that could work in any genre, let it be photography, music, art, even if you're the top 1%, the top, you can be the bottom 1% and still leverage that. Like, I'm a crappy photographer. Please follow me as I do my best to become better. You can still get a million followers. 
because you're, you're, you're not pretending to be who you're not, right? You're telling people exactly where you're at and you're being authentic and people love that. People are like, oh, that's cool that he's putting himself out there and I wouldn't have the courage to share my journey of learning how to sing, learning how to paint, learning how to become a better photographer. Like I'd be scared to, to share this stuff. And it's so authentic that people are like, I'm gonna follow this person because I wanna follow their journey. So I always tell people like being authentic and projecting out, that to me is like true branding. I, absolutely. Um, I, I wanna just go back quickly when, when you're talking about like the coffee shop comparison. So, you know, the, the not judging things that, that look unassuming I know you've done some work for them. And I gotta say like one of my most favorite coffee shops ever anywhere, Revolver Coffee. Um, and if, if you're looking at them from, from the outside, yes, um, it, do, it, it doesn't look like much. Like even when you go inside, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't look like, like it's not fancy. It's not like, you know, super crazy, but the coffee is like so amazing. Um, and yeah. and that's the thing that's kind of like they, they've established this, this this brand like where people trust that they can get a good quality product there and they they don't have to like distract from from that they just sell a good thing and they don't have to like make it fancy and enticing to get in there um now on, on, on the other topic that, that you're talking about there of like you know what, what do you represent what do you stand for um i've been seeing and i don't know if you've seen these in clubhouse um, but I've seen a bunch of these rooms like Instagram's dead. Let's talk about it. Or I've even heard a lot of people like talking about it, like sort of being, being dead in different, uh, rooms that I've popped into. And, um, I, I don't agree with that sentiment personally. And I'm, I'm curious to get your take on it, but like, I don't think Instagram is dead. I think a lot of us need to start thinking about using it in different ways though, because yeah, for sure. Toxic if, if you use it a certain way. And like, I've had personal instances where I've experienced it be very toxic and very detrimental to my mental health. Um, but in like the last like six years, I've found a way to harness it and make it work as a very powerful tool to like connect me to people, to connect me to creators, to like add richness into my life. And you know, the thing that I always kind of find funny, like when I get in conversations with people about being like, well, it's toxic. It like, you know, it makes me feel bad. It's like, okay, but you know, you picked all of that stuff, right? Like you pick what you follow. So if you're seeing things that you don't like that make you upset, then you- That's, you what's, that's what's being fed back to you. Yeah, like you, you chose that. So if you don't like it, unchoose it, unfollow it. You know, if you want to feel better, pick things that make you feel better. If you want to like, you know, learn more about landscape photography um, and you know, you're, you're tired of like body image stuff, then unfollow all that body image stuff and follow like, you know, landscape photographers. And like, you know, if you dig their work, comment, you know, DM. A lot of these people are really like open to, to chat sometimes. Like, you know, exactly. the photography community has, has been, you know, in, in my experience so far, so welcoming and, and, and open. Um, you know, just as we're talking right now, like, you know, I'm, I met you a couple of years ago in, in San Clemente at a film event and like we've stayed in touch since then. And, you know, it's, you have significantly more followers than, than me, but like we still chat like, you know, normally and there, there's no like um, sort of like elitism or anything. Um, no, and, and I think the problem with the, uh, you know, I, I could tell you two groups of people who, say either Twitter or Instagram is dead or it's toxic, two different groups. One is someone trying to climb, they're not, they can't, they see this illusionary glass ceiling that they can't break through because they believe either they're 
a vegan yoga girl and they think I'm as sexy and as smart as the other girl. She's got 2 million followers and I only have 10,000. You know, Instagram's broken. Like either that, like it's a, it's a very jealous negative energy hmm. or they are early success in Instagram, meaning they're used to the days where they would gain 10,000 followers a day and now they're losing 1,000 a day. So I know in the past, like five years ago, you got featured in some magazine, like top 10 influencers in Vancouver, Instagram influencer. I've known people to go up 40,000 in like one day because they got featured on some, some, you know, Street Dreams mag, top influencer of the year type thing. And they just all of a sudden, so they're used to like gaining thousands per day, 10,000. And now the past four years, they're now losing hundreds a day for the past five years. So, you know, I get it. You're used to having 400,000 followers and now you're at 250, but that's, and that's a slow death. Every day you yeah. wake up and you see like, wow, like that's another thousand less. I mean, that's hard on your psyche if you put all your value in the amount of followers you have. Well, it's, first of all, it's, it's delusional to assume that the entire ecosystem is based on your personal experience. It's like, for instance, for me, it's like, I know I'm small on Instagram, you know, with, 36,000, it's not, it's not big. They call me like a micro, <laughs> micro influencer, right? Or I would Dude, get so like if, the- if you're, if you're a micro influencer, I'm at like 2K. So it's like, you know, I'm like, I'm a little like smaller than- Well, we could talk about that in a second. But <laughs> my, my point is those are the groups that tend to have a skewed view of Instagram, meaning like, what mm -hmm. can I get out of it? What, you know, like I want, these are again, people looking for fame and not talent or not connections, right? So um, those are the people that I find are the most disgruntled with Instagram is they stopped growing and they're now shrinking. And there were influencers that got all these big brand deals, but now companies are trying to pull back of these very um, well-paying influencer gigs that are now starting to slow down. And now all of a sudden Instagram's not working for them. It's like, yeah, because you were spoiled for so long. You assume that that's how the entire ecosystem worked for everyone. And that's just not the case or the glass ceiling problem, someone trying to grow and they're not seeing the growth. So they're like, oh, like it's, it's broken because I, you know, I, I just started Clubhouse and I already have 10,000 followers. I'm in Instagram for, for five years and I'm still only at 1500. It's like, well, they're different platforms. Even if yeah. they both were visual platforms, it still doesn't equate. Like it's not, you know, like they still, it, they have the nuances, each like Flickr versus Instagram, there's nuances, right? Even though they're both visual platforms. And so, um, and then going back to what you talked about is quantity over quality is that I always tell people, look, do you want like a hundred thousand 12 year olds following you? Or you want like one person, but that one person is Oprah Winfrey. Like yeah. who, who do you pick? Yeah. You, you, you pick Oprah. You're like, yeah, Oprah. she can open way more doors. So I know a lot of Instagram or some of my favorite ones, they're like a third my size, but within the industry they're in, they're, they're powerful. You know, like for instance, in Vancouver, there's a, a food photographer named Layla Likes. So Layla Kwok, she's a friend of mine. We called each other our first Instagram friends because we were like the first to kind of reach out to each other. And there was a point where it's like, I had a little bit more than her, then she had more than me. And we kind of went back. So it was kind of playful, but neither of us took the numbers very seriously. So she's at like, I think 17,000 or 18,000. So I'm like double her, right? But the thing is, she is a number one food photographer in like BC. She knows all the, if you look at her feed, she does all the Fairmont restaurant chefs, 
all the top restaurants like Tojo's, the Japanese restaurant, yeah. Masayoshi, she runs their accounts and she takes all their photos and she runs their website because she's a web designer that kind of got suckered into taking photos because one of her clients is like, I'm not paying $4,000 for a photographer. You just take photos. You're artistic. And she's like, uh, okay. And so I think she borrowed her husband's Canon 5D and just kind of started taking her own photos and realized she had a talent for it. Nice. And so she has 17,000, but she's the number one food photographer. And I even asked her, I said, hey, if you lost Instagram, do you care? She's like, no, I don't care. I'm, I'm living the dream. Like every chef in town knows who I am. I'm fully booked for the year. I get to stay at all these Fairmont hotels for free because she's working. So she gets up to Whistler. They need a new uh, menu for that season. So she does all the food. So she bring up her family. She gets the executive suite. And she's like, I'm living the life with 17,000 followers. So sometimes I tell people like, look, what is your end goal with Instagram? Like, if you're, are you a coffee shop? How many followers do you think you need where it becomes an effective tool for your customers? Right? So if you're a global brand, I'll look at you and think, yeah, you should probably have 100,000 followers because you're Quicksilver or you're, or you're competing with the brand like Quicksilver. Look at your peers and realize, okay, that's, that's kind of where they're at. So that should be sort of your target, but let's just see, we'll run some campaigns, some branding campaigns, and then you kind of see what you get back from the platform. And then you realize, yeah, like, you know what? We're not as big as Quicksilver, but you know, we, we have a much higher retention and our follower base is much more dedicated. And when we run these, um, these programs and these um, promotions, they work out really well. So we're happy with half the size of Quicksilver. It's like, perfect, yeah. then that's all you need. And so I think growth for the sake of growth is a very capitalist thinking. Like you're big, but for what reason? So people wanna be a million, that's fine. But what do you think you can do with a million that you can't do with a hundred thousand? And if you can do the same thing with a hundred thousand, you're better off because in your comment section, you'll have a hundred comments instead of 10,000 comments. By the time you get 10,000 comments on a post, you can't really engage with the audience anymore. You have to hire someone yeah. to look through. So how authentic can you be when you get that huge, right? So, so you know, um, all those things are all linked. So I don't care if someone has 2,000 or they have 2 million. To me, if someone with 2 million looks down on me, it's like, well, I don't care. Like, and that includes YouTube, right? I remember when I did yeah. YouTube, people were saying like, how's this idiot getting these cameras early? And it's like, well, I've been in the industry for 20 years. I know the senior VPs of all these companies because I've worked with their fathers, you know, and I've been in the industry for so long. It's like, have you ever tried phoning them? Have you ever tried sending, a, a, you know, print out a picture and then writing a letter? Have you ever tried going on to LinkedIn, figure out who's the director of marketing and actually just reach out and say, hey, like you just assume that people just come to you. It's like, why don't you just reach out? And that's where my strength is. It's kind of like, I have these connections because they didn't fall on my lap. I reached out to these companies and you, you reach out to a hundred companies and maybe 10 get back to you. And out of the 10, maybe five work out, right? That's yeah. life, that's business. That's just how things work. Where some people think they deserve the attention. Like I have 2 million, they should be coming to me. It's like, not really. Well, not and really. That, was, that was a comment that, um, uh, ds manning said here people act like a free app owes them and um <laughs> they, they don't like that's the thing no. and joe says take you're the man always a ton of info we always have great stats and uh, a brooklyn girl says take is a national treasure of photography knowledge <laughs> all are a good human linda's too nice i, I know linda she's she's a, she's a nice girl from uh from from brooklyn i, I, I love everyone from brooklyn 
I I've never been to Brooklyn. It's it's one of the places that I've wanted to go. But um, you know, it's my phone's gonna die. Okay. For some reason, something, something's wrong. My phone, my phone isn't charging. Oh no! So what I'm gonna do? Yeah, I'm, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna switch over to to my um, I'm gonna switch over to my iPad. Okay, so all I'll right. be gone for a second, and I'm gonna cur- cur- try to come back again. All right. All right. Okay, well, I'll be back. Sorry for technical difficulties, guys. Take will be back in a moment. So, uh, well, while Take is gone, um, you know, appreciate you guys being on here. Um, does anyone have like questions for Take that we can line up for when he gets back? Um, hopefully he comes back. Otherwise I'm just gonna be all by myself here with you guys. Um, here we go, he's back. Come on, Instagram, there we go. Yo, I'm back. The well, angle's a little different, but I'm back. Yeah, nothing wrong with the angle. Well, you can see the lines are kind of falling backwards. That really bugs me. See the two lines? Uh, so that means the camera is tilted backwards. Yeah, it bugs me. That's, that's all right. There's little, the little OCD. OCD? Yes, OCD. Yeah. It, it, it happens from time to time. Like, I mean about the number too much like there was a, a brief period when like I started climbing up where I was like um oh this is exciting and like I want more growth but now like I've, I've got the insights going and it's really interesting to see like how often like you go up and then you lose but and then you like just it, it's this constant like sort of like even though your numbers are rising there's so many like bots or like whatever that follow you or like random people um, and then like, like one thing too, that I always find interesting is, um, there's so many people out there that bought their follows. Oh yeah, for sure. And I get those messages all the time and I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit tempted sometimes where I'm Don't like, do it. well, I, I'm not going to, because like I've had my, my Merlin DB account I've had since, uh, eight months after Instagram launched. So like it's it's an OG account and it's also kind of like an archival dig because if you were to go scroll to the bottom which takes like almost five minutes of constant scrolling you'd see like the history of my life in the last eleven years yes um and I'm there's a part of me that's scared because like it would be cool to get like that 10k so that I could do the swipe up and shit like that when I do stories but then like part of me is like what if Instagram clamps down on these people one day that bought all of these followers and shuts they, their They've done it a few times, you know. They've done a couple of calls and I've known guys that lost like tens of thousands, you know, and it's just foolish to pretend but, you're bigger than you are cuz Yeah. I just don't just... want to lose my account. Like I'd be that would be a bummer to me is if I did something like that and then they took my my account away from me and I had to start fresh again. It, that would kind of bum me. And it's not about the followers. It's just like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, this has been mine for so long. And this has been like my little spot on the internet to like connect with people. And it would be sad to to kind of lose it. So, you know, that's the one thing that's prevented me from doing it out of curiosity. But then it's just also like, I don't really care about the growth anymore. It's more about the people. And, and Jeffrey made a, a comment there, like, you know, quality over quantity. Um, that's something my father used to tell me all the time. And I'd kind of roll my eyes at him when I was a kid, but it's totally true. Like, you know, the, the quality makes a huge difference. 
Yeah, for sure. And, and that's where, um, for me, um, yes, I want growth, but I want, like, my wife would always tell me, like, she, my wife follows my numbers like a hawk. She like, you went down again. Like, I'm like, oh, okay. Because she's like, you were at 36.5, and now you're at 36.4. You're down. And I'm like, look, any, any, even a graph that goes up is still has these little dips. But if you look overall, there's still always growth. Um, so I am aware of the growth, but I don't focus on it. I know, um, for me, this is a business, right? But I also want it to be authentic. So I want to grow authentically. And when I lose people, it means they didn't see value in what I was producing. And I want yeah. them to go. Like, if you look at my account, only recently have I followed more than 50. I stuck it at 50 because I didn't want Instagram, for me, to be a consumption device. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be a creation device because I don't spend a lot of time on Instagram consuming content because my mind is so busy. I always want to around and create all the time. I, I barely have time to look at my own photos, let alone like other people's. And I also don't want to pollute my own vision with other great artists because I'm thinking as soon as I fall in love with the work through osmosis, my stuff is going to just naturally start looking like theirs. People who think, oh, that's not going to happen. Look at a group of friends, how they all start dressing the same over time. They all buy similar it's jack. It's like, it's not on purpose. You just kind of, you know, we, we're social creatures. We're meant to rub off on each other. And so when you kind of virtually spend a lot of time with people that you look up to, your work's going to start looking like this. So I'm not saying don't follow your heroes, um, but I keep it to a minimum because I have my own personal account as well. That, and I have even a personal private, I have a personal public account and a personal private account, which is just family and close friends. And um, I consume on those, but my mindset is different when I'm in those accounts. Like my That's thinking true. shifts. When I'm, in, when I'm in Big Head Tacos, like this is my business account. This is for work. And this is where I share my work stuff. And then when it's like my niece and nephew and you know my siblings and stuff, it's just a very playful, fun, and I, nobody cares about the likes or anything. It's just kind of like, you just want to be with your family and friends. So um, I think really keeping those uh, things separate um, it is it is important. Like Stacy Prince Studios talking about uh, yeah. about uh, being a student and and growing out the business. I think Instagram and YouTube and Twitter and and Clubhouse again those a lot of those are sort of like a little bit of the outside of a coffee shop. You know what I mean the substance of your brand is still coffee, like or whatever the brick and mortar is, and it's that the core of your brand isn't there and when i say it isn't there i don't mean the quality necessary because you know one of the questions and maybe i'll ask this to you and because i'm asking this maybe you already know the answer but what is more important in a food service business in terms of branding consistency or quality what is more important consistency or quality that's a tough one because like it could be a really good quality product but if you don't have consistency in the quality then it doesn't matter if every once in a while you like nail it and hit it out of the park. Like, and that's where like McDonald's has been successful. It's not a really great quality product, but it's fairly consistent in how awful it is. So from a business perspective, the, the, the right answer. So this isn't an opinion. It's just like right or wrong from a business perspective. It doesn't mean it's for ethical or, or, or whatever, but business perspective, consistency is more important. And you nailed it on the head with McDonald's. McDonald's basically said, look, we're a six out of 10. We know we're a six out of 10. We know what it takes to be a nine out of 10. We can't scale it. 
It's not scalable with 2 million locations. We just can't do it. But we can do a six or maybe a seven on some, like for instance, I think the quarter pounder now is like the only use fresh beef. Like they make it differently than the other burgers because it yes. was the one burger that competed against the Wendy's and I think in Canada, A&W, like they all brag, we only, we don't use frozen patties. We don't, so McDonald's like, man, like we're losing business from the quarter pounder. They crunch these yeah. numbers and like, we got to up it. So they made the quarter pounder like a seven or an eight, right? They're like going, we're getting pounded on our quarter pounder, but they know like, look, we're a six, but we're a consistent six and they're very successful. Where a brand like uh, Revolver's like, we're a nine or 10, but we can only have one location. In fact, there's, 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 there's one more Revolver location and you know where it is? Where? It's in EA Sports, inside. And it's only well, meant, yes, it's only for meant Sports. for staff and, and <laughs> guests of EA Sports. So you can go in there if you're a guest at EA and it is run by Revolver and it must meet up to their standards and they have a deal, a licensing deal where it's like, if it, you know, whatever the contract's up and they're unhappy with the way it's run, they could just take away the names and you can't use the name anymore. We're like, we, we're out, we, we don't want to work with you. And basically Terry, the owner is like, yeah, we can't scale this. You want to be a nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10, like you have to be omnipresent. Meaning if you open up a location in Toronto and LA, it's like, well, one of the sons have to fly out or you're flying once a month to these locations every time. And you know, he's a new grandpa and his wife's a new grandma. And they're like, we, we're getting grandchildren now and we don't have the energy or the time to become this global empire. So we're happy being nine out of 10, but because of it, we have to micro, not micromanage, but very nuanced management style. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult and you can only pull off a one or two off kind of store or something like JJ Bean or some of these other brands, they might be like, we're a seven and a half, eight out of 10. And we can sort of scale, but we gotta, we can't be like a Starbucks. We can't open up too much. We can't, you know, we can't, you know, there's different strategies. And there are brands that actually, I met a guy, a company's called Spring. They okay. are a company that helps to scale businesses. So even Starbucks, when they're like, we wanna be global, Starbucks didn't have the management team to understand scaling. They're like, we know how to run three locations, but we don't know how to run 300,000 locations. You need a company like Spring to come in, analyze your business, understand global strategies and be like, okay, this is how you scale. This is yeah. the order in which you do it. And so likewise, um, I don't even know, wh why did we start down this? this, this um, oh, because um, Stacy had a question oh, about how to grow a business. Yes, so I think, so within your business, if you say, okay, look, I want to be a 10 out of 10 artist, right? I want to be 10, but I think realistically, I'm probably a six out of 10, at least at this time. So where does a six out of 10 brand survive in this ecosystem? Like, okay, I can't approach art galleries because they're only interested in either nine, 10 out of 10 artists. Plus there's a yeah. little bit of politics when it comes to that kind of stuff, right? Like, oh, who's your father? Oh, your father is so-and-so. He's a, like, you can leverage those kind of things, right? Which is fine. Hey, it's like, if you're like Paris Hilton's cousin, if you want to leverage it, go for it. But, you know, do it again authentically, right? And some people, it's not their fault that their parents are famous. It's like their parents are famous. Like, what are you going to do about that? But, you know, leverage it in an authentic way and kind of find your own. Like, for instance, Sofia Coppola took her father's name, but her cousin, um, Nicolas Cage, who's also Coppola, said, I'm dropping the Coppola name and I'm going to call myself Cage because <laughs> I don't want to run off the coattails of my uncle, right? Well, so maybe like, his uncle didn't want him to like ruin his <laughs> Maybe, maybe, maybe. 
Which mean, it's funny you mentioned Nicolas Cage. So going back to the start of photography chats, the very, very first episode that Jason Moore and I did, uh, I think we talked more about Nicolas Cage than we did about photography. So it's interesting Nick Cage. Nick Cage pops up every now and then in the photography chats. From that era of actor, I am a John Cusack fan. I mean, High Fidelity Dude. and uh, Gross Point Blank. He, so, he could do no wrong after that for me. But anyways, uh, going back to um, uh, Stacy. Yeah, Stacy, if you're still on, um, knowing where you place yourself within the ecosystem you're trying to be, like out of a scale of 10, if you are five or six, there's room for six. There's a room for six out of 10 artists, but you need to know where that space is within, within the sphere that you're trying to get into and then research the people that are in that sphere and figure out what they've done to become successful and then try to not copy, but use those, use similar strategies to grow your brand, but authentic to you. What were you going to show me? So on, on your John Cusack note, um, my, my cohort in Northern Film Collective, well, the, the founder of Northern Film Collective, um, a group that I'm part of, and you know a few people on, on the chat here follow. Um, if you don't follow it, the Northern Film Collective is a Canadian group of photographers where we amplify um, you know, Canadian film photography. And the reason why Becca started it was um, she noticed that most of the reposting pages on Instagram were all American based mm. and there wasn't really a lot of Canadian content. So um, she wanted to create something that, um, you know, had Canadian content and um, oh, Stacy says, thank you. Um, so she wanted to create something that had more Canadian content, but then with the idea of it being, maybe we could do like a yearly annual to like showcase, um, you know, all these photographers, which she just put together and we got the prints of it. So it's oh, this, nice. beautiful, um, this beautiful book here. There's still a few copies available, um, but the John Cusack link, we were packing them all up last night. So we had like probably like 120 books and, you know, putting them into plastic sleeves and, you know, wrapping them up in cardboard, putting shipping labels on them. And we were listening to the Gross Point Blank soundtrack. I and love that soundtrack. It's awesome. Dude, it's one of the best soundtracks ever. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a huge sucker for, for John Cusack, too. Like, I mean, I grew up on his movies as a kid. And, uh, like, t dude, tape heads? Dude, everyone loves Roscoe's. <laughs> but, you know, like... So even when he does bad stuff, my wife's like, what? This is like back in the day of buying DVDs. And he did like some really like weird stuff. Like, what was it? Like, um, it's like one of those Christmassy movies where he met some girl and they, I don't know, whatever. The oh, case. Yeah. Yeah. But mm. I would buy the DVDs because I'm like, I'm going to support anything he does. Even if it's bad, I get it, John. You need, you need some money. <laughs> Good scripts haven't come your way. You got to take these... Uh, these movies every once in a while, I get it. I forgive you. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll give this one a pass. I would like buy his movies. And my wife's like, stop buying John Cusack movies. I'm like, I'm going to support the man. I need to support him. I need to do anything he does. And there was a new movie that uh, Netflix series he did um, on, not Netflix, um, Amazon Prime. He plays oh, the okay. bad dude. He's really good at playing bad dudes. Yes. You, you don't expect it. One of my favorite movies that he did, though, was War Inc. 
Do you ever watch that one? Yeah, you know, I, the, I've, I've seen it. I just can't remember the, the premise so, of the movie. War, War Inc. Is, is really fascinating because they take, like, all of the worst parts of, like, American war and just satirize the shit out of it. So it's, <laughs> like, John Cusack plays this, like, hired gunman who's, like, a political assassin of sorts who's like, hired by the U.S. government to go in and fix regimes as needed. I and, remember the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's just kind of funny because they make it all comical. And, like, he has, like, an OnStar thing, but it's, like, OnStar for hitmen. So it's just, like, you know, he everywhere he goes, he has this, like, voice that, like, talks him down from, like, wanting to kill himself and shit because he hates what he's doing. Like, you know. These guys, I, I think we have more Cusack fans. Someone's like, Serendipity, that's the movie. Yeah, Serendipity. Serendipity. It was a horrible movie, but it was John Cusack. I had to buy it. And then also Utopia is the one on Prime. And it's okay. scary because it, it's about a pandemic with, like, vaccines. And I don't think there'll be a season two because it's so, it's so close to reality in a way that it's one of those movies where it's like, anyways, I don't want to give it away, but, but he, he plays a bad out. guy. What was the hotel one? Oh, the hotel one. That was uh, like room 1808. Yeah, 1808. I think that was it. Oh, I, I was um, thinking of the, um, what was that, the, the jury one, the, the court hearing where they were moving from state to state. Was it called the grand jury or something? That was pretty good too. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Um, or no, it wasn't room 1808. Hey, I, uh, identity? But anyway, yeah, we um, I was better off than such a classic. I, I, I knew, I knew, like there's like 12 minutes left, and I'm thinking, like I, I had a runaway jury. That's what it's called. That's actually a pretty good movie. I think it's on oh, Amazon Prime now. It's pretty good. It's kind of yeah. a, have a little twist. Gene Hackman's in there. Come on. Oh, Gene Hackman's fantastic. And, and I think, I think, uh, what's his name? Not Rob. I always mix him up with Robert De Niro. He played Great Man. What's his name? Oh, um, Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. So Dustin, it's Dustin Hoffman, Gene Hackman, and John Cusack all in the same movie. Runaway Dang. Jury, you gotta watch it. I'll have to check it out. It's not, it's not like, it's, it's not his typical kind of smirky kind of, like he's not like this witty, I mean he is, but it's a different role for him. Different kind of witty. So I like the movie because of Dustin Hoffman and Gene Hackman, thinking like, he must have been like peeing himself, going like, I'm in a movie with these guys? Like, what the heck? Like, I don't deserve to be here. He could have picked any guy to do this role. And, and, and John Cusack's like the main dude in, in the movie. Wow. Runaway Jury. It's on. It's on Amazon Prime. I think. I'm. I'm I, I think I, I've had it liked or whatever a favorite to to watch it again because it's been so long now. I think I kind of forgot a lot of the bits and pieces of it. So it'll be great to, to rewatch. But anyways, I was saying we've eleven minutes left and like. Yeah. Well, no, just one one last plug on it. So, um, if you want to check out Canadian film photography, we only did a run of hundred fifty bucks. And I think there's like... Can you, can you open it and show a little bit? Uh, like, I'm going to show one. So here, here's one just for you because of where you're at. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's, that's uh, some first, sweet cinephil. First of the roll because it's uh, the first shot. Yeah. And it's uh, East Van. And then I'll... Uh, here's one of... Uh, this is one of Becca's. Sticking with the cross theme. Mm. So Jesus saves. You uh, know, don't you hate that Instagram, everything is reverse. They mirror everything. Yeah, and then this is this is one of mine. So this is some film Ferrania. Oh, nice! That stuff is crazy um, contrasty, yeah. eh? Oh, it's it's gorgeous. Um, but yeah, the, we only did 150 books. So um, you know, if if you're interested, I think they're like 
it's like 50 bucks or something right now. Um, definitely worth picking up, but we will be doing this yearly. So every year we'll, we'll do like an open thing where Canadian film photographers can submit photos and, nice. uh, you know, we just want to amplify more people because like, this could be a, a thing where like, you know, a lot of these people who submitted photos, this might be the only time their stuff ends up in a book. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say like, you know, it's funny how Canada is a powerhouse in some things, but in other things were very marginalized. Like for instance, on YouTube, it seems like Canadian YouTubers do really well. Like Lou later, like uh, unbox therapy, Peter McKinnon, you have uh, Dave 2D on the tech side. Um, you have yeah. all these powerful Canadians, right? But then like in other genres, like we're just non-existent. And even like musically, yeah. they pick up on like Brian Adams and Shania Twain and Celine Dion. And people think, oh, Canadians are like really popular. But then like bands like Tragically Hip just kind of like under the radar, right? Like to me, they're like, they should they should be more, I, I, I thought the Americans would like the Tragically Hip more. But I guess. Well, so the, the, hip, the, the thing was the tragically hip um, had a chance to address the American market the, the time they got pulled on to Saturday Night Live. And they were told to play a certain set of songs that would have. Um, New, Orleans, New Orleans is sinking. Yeah. And they, th that one specifically. But there was like a couple of songs that they were told, play these ones and Americans will like eat you guys up. And they're like, no, we're going to play what we want. Yeah. And so, like, they stuck to their guns. And, like, I mean, that love them or hate them, they are probably one of, like, the most important bands in Canada. And in oh, Canada, yeah. Like, just... I, I mean, I, I love... I See, growing up in Canada, you do live in a bubble where, at least when it comes to radio, not as much TV, where, you know, there's a certain amount of Canadian content you have to consume. Yeah. where if they didn't have this, a lot of these bands would never get exposure, right? So growing up in like, in the 80s, there were bands like Chalk Circle and Northern Pikes and all these stuff from the prairie, these, these prairie bands. And they got all this exposure, Glass Tiger, I think, and all oh, these yeah. kind of bands, right? And then in the 90s, it was like Wide Mouth Mason. I love those guys. Um, and also like, and there's other bands like, um, like the New Pornographers, right? They kind of had like a, a tragically hip vibe, meaning like they were kind of indie, and you didn't really know if the Americans would take to them or not because they were kind of alt and they were weird because like half the band could sing and they all went off and did personal project and then would all come back together and stuff like that. Um, but um, Tragically Hip, yeah, it just seemed like it was a band that I wish Americans accepted, not for the sake of acceptance, but just kind of like, you kind of, like Rush. I was a Rush fan in the 80s and there were always this weird band that even Canadians didn't get. And you kind of wish like they got their due. Like they're so good. Why don't people get it? And I was the same with Tragically Hip. I'm like, why don't people get the stuff? Like, it's so good. So to to like circle it all up and, and wrap it in a bow, I think this goes to to your point. Do you want to be an actor or do you want to be famous? And the Tragically Hip were like, we just like writing songs and making people happy. And they they did get some fame in in like their own right, but they were happy with what they had. They had an opportunity to do more if they wanted it, but they they were just like, no, this is like, why why get more? And I wish that more people kind of acted like that. You know, we could do with a lot more people like the Tragically Hip out in the world. 
Um, yeah, for sure. You know, and just like even even Gord and all that. And you know, uh, Brooklyn Girl mentions Brave New Waves. Like, man, like that makes me. So I grew up on much music as a kid in the nineties. Yeah. Um, like. I just all of the, all the Canadian programming, like all that, it was so good in the '90s. The music was was so great, and I remember the first time I came to Toronto, um, before I moved here, I think it was like 20, 2014, maybe 2014 and twenty thirteen. Came to Toronto, and I was like drunk, wandering down Queen Street, eating pizza, pizza, because that's the only time that pizza, pizza ever tastes good. And um, I remember like walking past this building and I'm like, why does this building look familiar? City it, was TV. Much, it was much music. Yeah. And I was like, I actually started crying when I realized what it was because I was like, what did they do to you? <laughs> You're like, they tore you down. Like, I just remember like as a kid, it was such this vibrant spot and like yeah. it had all this like crazy stuff. And now it's just like another nondescript building. Yeah on queen street like it's it's kind of it's kind of a bummer like i wish we could reclaim some of that vibrance like i feel canada is really good at taking the back seat when we don't really deserve that like you know we we should be like you know what no we we should like you know stand up and like i, I think we could i think we canada our biggest challenge is geography you know, yeah. like if we we could be like a netherlands or like a germany it's just we're so spread out even something as simple as why are tire prices like twice the price in Canada versus the U.S. is like, you know how far you have to move tires and you can't compact them any more than they are. They take up a lot of space. Well, and, and, you know, our population base is like, if you're an American business selling products, you can sell the same amount. Like someone was saying, like, if you're in L.A., if you're a California band, you yeah. can survive just doing the California circuit, which is the same as all of Canada, but you got to traverse the entire country so a band of let's just say tragically hit that was let's just say they were only successful in canada they weren't they did a lot of college gigs and smaller yeah. like theaters in the u.s but let's just say you're a canadian band like i'm gonna only survive in canada it's a lot of work because an la band could do the same thing and travel by bus and hit every city within a day right where canada will take you a week and a half to like bus across the country and so the, the biggest issue we do have is geography i think like look at us right we're three hours apart. Yeah. And I've always said I would love to do like, hey, Merlin, next weekend, let's do a photo walk. I'm like, well, we can't. Like, or well, any of my know, Toronto friends. Like, we're three hours and five hour flight away from each other. That, that's very true. I mean, like, Canada does have a lot of potential for greatness, but there's some very, very serious things that, that we need to address. And, like, I get a little disappointed because, like, on, on the world stage, I think we're given a lot more credit than we deserve right now um, because a lot of people think like, Oh, Canada is such a great, pro like great country. Like, you know, you guys are so ahead and like, you know, there maybe there's no racism and like all this stuff. And it's like, no, like we have a lot of issues right now. Like, you know, it's been over 20 years now that several indigenous communities have been without clean water and our government has failed at fixing that problem decades in um, you know, in Toronto, uh, we're having massive issues with homelessness right now, where the city of Toronto is literally waging war against homeless people. Mm. And instead of helping them, they're like ruining their, their places to, to live and survive. And, you know, 
putting them into these oppressive situations where it's like, no, go stay in these shelters where the shelters are probably more dangerous than where they were staying in, in a tent on the street. Um, for Canada to be truly great, we need to start addressing our own internal problems and in promoting, um, you know, better living for all of our citizens before we can really go out in a global stage and, and say, like, look at how awesome we are. Because, you know, I'm begrudgingly proud of the country I live in, but it's like a tarnished pride where it's like, you know, I, I don't want to live anywhere else, but I'm a little bit ashamed about some of the shit we do on the daily. Well, you know, I think I, I, I know people that do come from countries that I admire and they have the same complaints, you know, like yeah. from Japan, like I know it's not perfect there, but I see like a lot of expats living there whining about, and they're from the UK or the US. I'm thinking like, have you seen your own home country? Like, yeah, Japan has their own problems. Like Canada has their own problems, but have you seen where you're from? Like, have you seen how, you know, like, so I guess every, actually, you know what? I'm just noticing here, camera film for the Hey, Michelle, how's it going, buddy? You know camera well, film? No, and I don't, I'll, I'll have to give them a follow. Like the, the so, biggest like travesty I think in Canada though, is like, just we're not addressing the issue, like the indigenous issues. Yeah, that's definitely a, a very deep seated. It's like the Americans with slavery and the black population. It's such a long standing conflict and unaddressed issue that yeah. that people, I mean, I think to uh, so, to give them a little bit of slack, I guess if you can call it slack, is that yeah, it's you can't just start from here. You got to almost go back two hundred years and talk about the residential schools and what created these laws yeah. that created the systemic. Like even if someone who wants to, like I was listening to a CBC documentary about uh, the contractors that are meant to go and do water lines or clean water systems in the uh, indigenous lands, yeah. they get paid less than if they approached a regular municipality. So they're saying like, even from a business standpoint, companies that want to do it, they're like, but we make less money and we only have six guys and we would love to be part of the solution, not the problem, but this township, like there's a cap on indigenous lands and then on private, I guess not private, but regular cities that are incorporated, they can bid and charge more and stuff. They're like, so it's like it's built into the pricing. They're like, it's, it's and, and why? Why is it cheaper? Because for some reason, there's some kind of a federal, I guess it's being paid by federal versus provincial or by city. And so they can yeah, be more efficient in pricing or? Federal versus like, munis like so municipalities can control all their own money. But, you know, a, a thing that most Canadians are probably not aware of when a lot of them are ignorantly bashing Indigenous people is that they don't have any control of their own money on the reservations. So the federal government, for the most part, controls their money. And there's a, there's a comptroller that's placed in there by the government. And that's why there's the, a, a bunch of, um, you know, communities that are now having the ability, because they have some some richness behind them, to start doing self-governance and build their own framework for governing themselves and taking back their own money and control of it. The unfortunate part is though, there's several communities that don't have that ability. They don't have rich resources like that to be able to, um, you know, fight for, for their own rights. So it's, it's good that like a movement is starting, but really the, the federal government just needs to relinquish more control back to them um the, the sad thing is though it's like the the hurt is just super deep so it's like um 
I remember reading something about like Holocaust trauma and there was like a research saying that like in what they've been looking at for trauma from the Holocaust is that it takes at least seven generations for that like trauma to be dissipated through through a family line. And you look at what's happened here in Canada, we're not even two generations in to what's happened with residential schools. And so there's people like, we'll just get over it. Like, how bad is it? I, 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 I grew up in East Van. Like, I had a lot of, yeah. lot of friends that were Indigenous. And, you know, we tried to understand them. And as a teenager, you kind of knew, like, all oh, the dad was abusive and a drunk. And then you realize, oh, he grew up in a residential school and was molested or something. And you just, yeah. or just psychologically abused. And he never came. It's like war trauma, right? And he just came back never normal. And that affects their children and it's a cycle of of trauma and the kids end up making similar bad decisions in their life and you think like how, okay. how how do they end up so messed up like you knew them when they're young they seem so normal and then some like a switch goes off and they're 19 and 20 like i think a lot of us end up becoming like our parents and that's the running joke of any culture right it's like oh you're starting to talk like your dad you're like yeah so imagine your dad was traumatized your mom was traumatized or abused and how that affects a child and when they grow up, right? And that cycle just continues. And so exactly. uh, that's well, very difficult to get over. And Kat makes an interesting point here. She says the last residential school closed in 1995. So it's it's still fairly recent. And yeah. you know, I, I know you got to take off here, but like the last thing, so we were talking about the tragically hip. Um, if you do want to like learn and understand more about residential schools and, and like, you know, the, the atrocities behind it, um, look up Gord Downey's secret path. So he did a very beautiful collaboration with, with an animator and, um, you know, they, they put together like a beautiful um, illustrated book, <clears throat> but also a short movie. And he made an album called The Secret Path, which is the story of Chani Wenjak. And uh, he, was, he was a boy that tried to run away from a residential school to get home. And he froze to death on train tracks, trying to walk home 400 miles because he, he wanted to get home. And it's it's interesting because you learn a lot about like what how yeah it, it is a great book film and album like it's um if you they they did make like a, a special pack of it where you could get the vinyl and the book and all that um it was a limited release if you can find that it's a beautiful thing to have but even just like, like you could probably find the video on youtube or find the album on streaming services out there um if you don't know much about residential schools that that's a place to start and then looking at what Gord started with the Wenjack Foundation and, and the work that he's trying to do there. Like it's, um, as, as Canadians, I think it's important to be more aware of that and, and, you know, understand the cost of this land that we're living on here and, and what people have had to give up for, um, you know, the, the fairly comfortable lives a lot of us lead. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. Sorry, I got a little heavy there, but I talk <laughs> it. I appreciate it. You... People are like, what is it? What, where's where's the camera talk? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I like script. The... We don't script anything. Well, no, and, and that's why I like these talks. I like that they're not scripted. Um, but I appreciate too because, like, you know, the theme is you're a photographer, um, but you you also shared a lot of really great information tonight that I think would be extremely valuable to people listening here on how they could maybe have, um, you know better relationships with their social media um, and, you know, use it to, if they're using it for business to improve their business on those platforms and, and whatnot. So, 
you know, even though we didn't talk a lot about cameras tonight and, you know, we didn't get to like, what's your favorite film stock and things like that. I'm glad that we had this conversation. Because, For sure. Actually, you I, know, one, one thing I was going to mention about okay. mental health is I've been doing this for about a year now, which is I no longer sleep with my phone in my, in the bedroom. It's on my desk in a second room. I turn on the, the, I usually have it on vibe when it's with me, but at night I turn, turn it on. So if there is like an emergency phone call, I can hear it. I bought a, I bought a separate clock, you know? So some people are like, it's my alarm clock. Just spend 10 bucks and buy a, a double C, a double, uh, double A cell little clock from London drugs or something. Right. So I have that on the floor of my bedroom. So I can see it if I needed to know the time. And when I wake up, I have this routine. I forgot the name of the doctor. He's an East Indian doctor living in the UK. He's okay. quite a well, I think he has a book called The Five Pillars of Health. Okay. And his main principle behind it is like, you know, do stuff like, do two push-ups a day. Like, don't say I'll do a hundred. It's like, you're never gonna do it. You'll do it for the first three days and quit. Just say, I'll do two. And guess what? You'll probably do five. And then, then you'll do 10 and you need the sense of accomplishment. So one of the things is, um, you know, getting enough sleep and, you know, eating right and stuff like that. But one thing was about social media and he told this in his podcast saying like, don't sleep with your phone in your room and then create a routine that you're comfortable with where it's not the first thing that you do. So I do the thing where I make the bed first is the first thing I do. And then I do my stretches and then I go, I do this thing called oil pulling which is you okay. swish like uh, coconut oil or any kind of an oil. It's an East Indian technique of like pulling um, uh, bacteria from out of your mouth. I still brush my okay. teeth, but I do oil pulling as well. But then I go outside to my backyard and I take in vitamin D because vitamin D is a very important vitamin for the body to absorb, especially in the winter. We tend to wear more clothes. We tend to spend less yeah. time outdoors and people have a lot of bone density uh, issues because that's why most civilizations don't live in the far poles because nope. of the lack of sun. And any society that lived in the far poles, actually like the Vikings, they took in a lot of cod liver and cod liver oil. Guess what? Super any um, uh, Viking civilization that left the, um, the main compound and tried to become a farming community, they yeah. all died off because they weren't getting vitamin D because they were too far up north and away from the seas. So um, getting vitamin D. So what I do is get up, go outside, take in vitamin D while swishing for 10, 15 minutes. And that's my morning routine. And then I come in, brush my teeth, make some tea, and then I grab my phone. So I'm like 30 mm -hmm. minutes in. I do quickly check just to see, was there like a phone call from my mom or some emergency thing? But I make sure it's like 10 seconds. I just click my main screen. Nope, nothing's there. Everything is fine. And then 30 minutes in is my first look at my phone. Okay. And I found that that's really helped me in terms of that whole morning routine of you get up and the first thing you do is look at your phone and you're sitting in bed for half an hour longer than you probably meant to be. I yeah. never, because I'm just staring up at it. And if I am, then I'm meditating, I'm thinking about stuff. Like if I do wake up and I don't get up right away, usually, like just before you fall asleep or just before you wake up is when your brain is the most active, right? Mm. And typically the best ideas come from people who are just kind of waking up or sleeping. They say like some of the greatest speeches and the greatest songs ever written is usually just before someone wakes up or just before they go to bed. So a lot of great artists have notepads next to their bed, right? So sometimes I do get like 
great ideas as I'm waking up and not having a consumption device like a phone. To me, like a phone or an iPad is a creation device. It's not a consumption device for me. I only use it to input and to create, but um, not having it near me, that will force me to not consume first thing, but it's to be productive. It's, it's, it's now like, I'm not even tempted to look at my phone in the mornings, not even. In fact, I often forget my phone when I leave the studio to go home to have dinner. I often forget it because I'm so not tied to my phone that I get up and I leave and I was like, oh, forgot my phone. Oh, oh well, I'll be back. So that's one <laughs> tackiest tip for, for mental health, especially for being productive first thing in the morning. I appreciate that, Take. Thank you so much. All right. Well, you know, thank you for spending some time with me and thank you everyone for joining us. Um, thank you for inviting me and thank you for joining as well, everyone. Absolutely. Uh, next week, I'm going to have uh, Felice Trinidad joining me. Um, I had a chance to shoot with her um, when I was doing the Lamography uh, Simple Use Camera Photo Walk giveaway. Um, a, a few months back and uh, she's a fantastic photographer and looking forward to uh, having her on so it'll be a great episode next week and this is a great episode tonight and thank you so much Take and oh thank you yeah. did you take did you take a screenshot of us already oh shit I, I gotta do that like this thank you for reminding me I was just getting so caught up in the conversation that I missed it okay we'll do one more for good man I want, I want to hold the camera though all right perfect well, thank you so much, Take, and All right, uh, thanks. we'll definitely be in touch. All right, take care, everyone. Take care, Cheers, everyone. Stay okay. safe out there. Bye. Bye-bye.